would invite you to turn again in your Bibles to the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 10. We don't have the hymn in our hymnal, but uh, there's a familiar hymn that is called Spirit of God, Descend Upon My Heart. And the author of that hymn has uh, one phrase in it that has gripped my own mind as I came to prepare the message this morning. And that line is, One holy passion filling all my frame. In writing about that one holy passion filling all his frame, the hymn writer is certainly reflecting the Bible's own emphasis upon the fact that God's people are to be a people that pursue one great thing. There's to be a goal that we are after with undivided heart, with singular purpose and intent. And as we do enter into this new year, it's been my desire to begin the first three Lord's Days of 2023, expounding biblical texts that outline that singular goal, that one great pursuit of the life of faith. I was thinking, I maybe have to justify the fact that uh, it's one pursuit I'm mentioning, but yet three sermons and three texts and three people and three incidences that we're going to look at. Well, what is it, Pastor? Is it one or is it three? We get that question in many aspects of religion, do do we not in theology? But reality is, though, the one thing that we're to be pursuing is multifaceted. It has aspects to it. This one is a diamond. It would be one stone necessarily, but yet multifaceted depending upon the way you turn it. You might see different aspects of it. So it's true also with the Christian life. The, the things we pursue, we're to pursue it with singularity, we're to pursue it as, as the great goal of our existence, the great goal of our lives. Last week we looked at one passage that spoke of one thing, that was Psalm 27 and verse 4. I called it the pursuit of His presence. The pursuit of His presence. The psalmist says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. One great thing to be in the house of God. Where God is present, there he wanted to be. Where God dwells, he wants to dwell. We as God's people in the new covenant see in Jesus the fulfillment of all of the temple imagery. He is the one in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. And we in him are made to be the very presence of God through the Spirit, the very habitation of God through the Spirit. The church becomes house of God, as well as Jesus being house of God, as well as our own bodies being temples of the Holy Spirit. And we want to, in our bodies, in the church, in our life and walk as disciples of Jesus, to make his presence to be the central factor of all of life, to behold his beauty, to inquire in our prayers, uh, to know him better, to serve him better uh, as the temple of the living God. Now, this morning I want to, as I said, look at this multifaceted pursuit of this one great thing. Now in terms of um, Jesus' words to Martha, 
In Luke 10 and verse 42, But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. Now when I introduced these messages last week, I entitled the second one, I said I would call it the pursuit of his teaching. It sounded good to me last week, but uh, I don't think I, that's, that's, that's comprehensive enough. I don't think that is sufficient. It's too limiting. Bigger issues are at stake than just his teaching. I shouldn't really say just his teaching, because his teaching is all, all embracing. His teaching is all um, encompassing. But yet, I think in the context, there's uh, other considerations that I hope to outline uh, to you bef- as we move along. Uh, but the title is going to change from that to what I'm going to call this morning, The Pursuit of His Pleasure. The pursuit of his pleasure. As we are a people about one thing, pursuing the presence of our God, we are also in that pursuit of his presence to be ever pursuing his pleasure. Now I want to say something about the setting of these words. It takes place in the house of Martha and her sister Mary. Though Luke speaks only of Jesus entering a village, we know from John's Gospel in particular that that village is Bethany. And we know that the home is the home of Simon the leper, and likely his children are Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. So this was the scene or the place in which the body of Jesus was anointed before the burial. And also the place where Jesus came, at least outside, to uh, go to the little tomb where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Now this was a family who had great uh, significance in the life of our Lord. It seemed to be a place that Jesus spent when he came to uh, Jerusalem. Matthew 21 and verse 17 indicates he was accustomed to lodge in their home uh, when he was in uh, Jerusalem. It does seem as though, even though this was the home of, um, of uh, Simon the leper, it, it was likely run by Mary. Mary, his probably eldest daughter, uh, because we read that it was her house. If not her house in terms of uh, inheritance or of possession, certainly it was her house in terms of government governance. Uh, she ran the house. She was the one who welcomes Jesus. She comes to the door. She receives him. She welcomes him in. And it was her younger sister, Mary, who also enters into this scene as, in terms of her place sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus. But we might ask ourselves the question, just why does Luke place this story at this point of his gospel? Back in chapter 9 and verse 51, we have one of the great uh, points of, um, of change in the gospel of Luke, um, because we read, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know, in John's Gospel, you have many different visits of Jesus to Jerusalem. Visits at the Passover season. Visits at the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7. Of the visit, he he, 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 he... 
He, he went to Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of the Dedication, Hanukkah. Uh, Jesus was accustomed to go to Jerusalem for the feasts of the annual feasts um, celebrated in Jerusalem. But yet it's the um, book of John that has him going back and forth from Galilee in, this, in the north down to Jerusalem in the south. Luke as well as Matthew and Mark's gospel, have basically one journey to Jerusalem. It begins with the greater Galilean ministry, Jesus' ministry in the north. At the time when John was, was arrested, Jesus went up north, and it doesn't see him leaving the northern areas. Not that he did not, just it's not what those gospels designed to tell us. Those Gospels designed to tell us about the great Galilean ministry of our Lord. And then that one trip down to Jerusalem at the final Passover in which Jesus was delivered up and betrayed and he was crucified and slain and rose from the dead. But Luke, in his Gospel, seems to be presenting us the journey to Jerusalem at a very early part of the gospel. You know, Luke's gospel has 24 chapters, and the crucifixion doesn't come, I think, until chapter 22 or 23, at least the, the betrayal and arrest. And his entry into Jerusalem, I think, comes in chapter 21. So you have uh, some 10, 11 chapters, it would appear that the journey to Jerusalem is being described, events that take place, as Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. How do you get to Bethany then? How do you get to Bethany in chapter 10? Bethany again was outside Jerusalem. It was the place where Jesus stayed when he went to Jerusalem. The answer might well be that John, I'm sorry, Luke places it at this point because Jesus had just given the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because you see, the Good Samaritan tells the story of a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now Jericho was north, but any direction from Jerusalem was always down. Because Jerusalem was beautiful for elevation. The joy of the whole earth. It was that place upon the Temple Mount. And everything was going down from Jerusalem. But that path from Jerusalem to Jericho took you through Bethany. It took you through Bethany. And it may well be as uh, Luke is recording the story of this man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho. He might have thought of Bethany and then gave us the account. Also there are aspects of the story, particularly in the area of the priority of relationships over ritual. That's part of the Good Samaritan story. You have the priest and the Levite. They are so concerned not to get near a dead body that they might be contaminated and be ceremonially unclean that they lost sight of mercy. They lost sight of compassion. They lost sight of their responsibility to this man taken by, by robbers and in need on the side of the road. And they went by each on the other side. And it may well be that Jesus wants, uh, I'm sorry, Luke wants his readers to know that also in the sense where Mar- Martha's busyness may well have been about 
Uh, do we got the right dishes out? Do we got the kosher dishes out? Do we got the right rituals? Have they been cleansed uh, uh, sufficiently? Jesus said you're distracted and by many things. There's many things that have come into your mind. Uh, to be a good host, maybe there was that aspect of failing to see the importance of relationship to Jesus as having priority over everything else. Whether the meal went, 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 was a bust or a meal was deemed a success. When there were plaudits to the chef, well done Mary, you did such a good job with that meal. Or whether there was, oh well, we've had better in other places. That wasn't the issue. The issue was who came into their house and their opportunity to know him, their opportunity to hear him, their opportunity to draw near to him. So there may be these, uh, these links that link the two, and certainly when we read passages of, of Scripture, we should be noting the difference, uh, uh, the way in which things are positioned, and because there is a theological reason, there's a reason. Luke put the story of Martha and Mary and, uh, Jesus, and, 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 and they're hosting Jesus at this particular point, and it may well be some of those common themes that these sections have, and we should have our antenna up to think um, in those terms. Well, regardless of why Luke put it here, we have the story here. And it's important for us to understand what the story entails. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to begin by saying something about Mary. I'm going to say something about Mary's place that's described here in the passage. Then we're going to move to Martha. And we're going to look at Martha's problem. We have Mary's place, and then we have Martha's problem. And then the final thing we're going to look at is Jesus' point. Jesus' point. That's the most important thing, but yet it's also important to consider Mary's place and Martha's problem. And then we'll understand the point that Jesus is making just a little bit more clearly. Well, let's begin with Mary's place in this story. Again, likely, Mary is the younger sister of Martha. Martha is the host. Martha is the one who welcomes Jesus into what is described as being her house. And Mary, the younger sister, without having direct responsibilities of the managing of the home and providing the hospitality sees this as an opportunity to sit at the Lord's feet and to listen to his teaching. Now, I think we need to consider that Jesus probably did not come there alone. He was traveling with the twelve disciples, all of them being men. Chapter 8 also mentions women who were with Jesus, who followed him and provided for them out of their means. That's mentioned in the 8th chapter. But it seems that in this home, there was no effort to segregate this group of people along lines of sexuality, or, or, or the men in, men in the gathering room, men out by the, by the fire pit or by the, by the barbecue. You know, that's where the men go. They go out to cook and they go out to talk and they go out to speak about college football and professional football and, and boxing and all men kind of things. And then the women gather in the kitchen and they talk about the kids and they talk about fe- 
email things. I mention that because there's a pastor friend of mine actually put something out on Facebook in which he was talking about true sensitivity to our identity as men and women really will consist in whether we're out by the barbecue, men only, and whether we're in at the kitchen, women only. Um, it does seem to me that the ordinary expectation would have been that Mary would not have been at the feet of Jesus listening to his teaching. She would have been in the kitchen. That would have been her place. It does seem that Jesus has none of that. Her place is rightly at his feet. She's chosen the better portion. It will not be taken from her. Mary takes a a physical posture that's ordinarily associated with discipleship. Disciples sat at the feet of their master. You have the reference also found in the Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. Paul gives his defense and says in verse 3, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was his teacher. Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel. And he took his place, whether metaphorically or literally, likely it was literally, he took his position where Gamaliel sat at the feet of Gamaliel, expressing his understanding that Gamaliel was the master, he was the subordinate, and he was to receive the teaching of Gamaliel. And it's enough for a disciple to be as his master. He was looking to be like Gamaliel. It was a position of discipleship. Jesus is breaking down the walls of division, of social divisions, of religious barriers. And Paul tells us in Galatians involved Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, one in Christ, one in Christ. Again, not to ignore the reality that there are distinctions between all those categories, one from another. Yet in Christ there is unity. In Christ what we share is more to the point, it's more vital to our identity than the things we do not share. Mary is not excluded from that place of being at the feet of Jesus, taking the place of a disciple, hearing his words. But not only does the passage seem to tell us something important about Mary's place, it certainly emphasizes Martha's problem. You begin the reading and it says, A woman named Martha welcomed him into our house. What do you think that scene looked like? Martha welcomed him into our house. Happy Martha! Glad Martha! Jesus is here! Wow! Excitement! Joy! enthusiasm. What a privilege to have the Master come into our house. Now 
I'm not told how long things went until things changed, but somewhere along the line, things changed. Again, Martha has responsibilities. She has responsibilities for the management of the house, for the preparation of the food, making sure that the preparation of the food was done according to kosher laws, making certain that her guests were, their needs were being met. And so, at one point, she begins to consider, where's Mary? Where's Mary? Why isn't she here with me in the kitchen? In that woman's place? Woman's place is in the kitchen. She needs to be doing women's work. She needs to be here with me. Before long, this serving ministry that she was engaging in was no longer a thing of joy. It was no longer a thing of, of happiness and privilege. No longer a sense of how wonderful it is that Jesus is in my home and I'm privileged to serve him in this way. She becomes distracted with much serving. Now, I think it needs to be said that often commentators and expositors of this passage think that the problem that Martha had was that she chose a, a more active life, whereas Mary chose the life of quiet contemplation. So the difference is quiet contemplation versus active living. But I say to you, that's just a false dichotomy in Scripture. Both those things are things in which we serve Christ. There's no wide distinction between a life of quiet contemplation and a life of active service. We serve the Lord Christ. That's a statement Paul made to slaves. Submitting themselves to their masters. He says you to do it in singleness of heart, fearing God, because you serve the Lord Christ. In your service as a slave, you are serving Christ. I may mention this some months ago, and I didn't remember exactly what it was that Ruth Graham had placed above her kitchen sink where she where she washed the dishes every day but then somebody texted it to me above her sink was the words divine service performed here three times a day divine service performed here three times a day you don't have to go to church to engage in divine service Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, we're to do all to the glory of God. We serve Christ. In the great things and the small things and the mundane things. It's an act of service. And it should be an act of joyful service. A sense of privilege to serve Christ. Whether it's in food preparation or hearing his words. Now, let me clue in on something. Martha was not going to be excluded from hearing Jesus' words. She would just have to wait a while. When they were all seated around the table, there would have been ample opportunity to hear Jesus speak, to hear Jesus answer questions. This wasn't just a matter of, well, he's here just for you know the next 15 minutes, so let's either serve or 
or listen quietly and let's do it quickly because we won't get a chance to do both. Ample opportunity to do both. Martha's problem was she allowed what she was doing and what Mary was doing to become a point of jealousy. Now again, we all sympathize with Martha. She had lots to do. But you know, she could have gotten help in other ways. She could have, without distracting Jesus or Mary, she could have put word out in some other way. You know, there's lots of stuff to do here. I wonder if someone could help me out. I wonder if uh, there can't be some assistance given to me. Um, Or else you're all going to have to wait a little bit longer than usual. (laughs) You have some hungry bellies. Someone needs to come in and help me. She could have gotten it done in some other way. But she made it a matter of a temper tantrum. She made it a matter where she not only... I mean, she could have addressed Mary quietly, gotten word to Mary in some quiet way. Mary, could you you please come and help me out in the kitchen? She could have gotten that to her in some way, but she doesn't do that. She's distracted with much serving. And so she goes up to Jesus. She goes up to the Master Himself. And not only does she say, what Mary's doing is wrong, but Jesus, you're wrong in allowing this to occur. And all the while calling Him Lord. You're the Lord! But I'm the house manager here, and I'm going to direct you what to do, Jesus. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. I emphasize the me words because that's what predominates. Me. My. Me. Don't you care about me? I mean, it's really absurd when you think about it. It's like the, you know, the, the same complaint that the disciples made when they were on board in the ship and, and Jesus was asleep. And they said, Lord, do you not care that we perish? I mean, the one that came from the glory he had with the Father from the foundation of the world to save these very people from their sins. Don't you care that we perish? He came that they should not perish. He came that they would have everlasting life. Do you not care that we perish? Or do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? The one who comes to ensure that we'll never be alone. The one who comes to equip us with his spirit and his presence, never to leave us, never to forsake us. That such a one would not have our needs at heart, would not care about our needs. Certainly Jesus did care If she went up in some other way than in the way of a spoiled child giving forth a temper tantrum to the Lord of glory, I'm sure he would have more than happily have acceded to her requests for needs. But this is what she did. She was petulant about this. I don't think we should discount the fact that this distraction that Mary had spoiled her attitude. It spoiled the way she performed these things. 
And this is a woman who had heard Jesus speak before, had received his teaching before. And you see, it's not so much a question of where you serve, it's how you serve. It's not whether you're serving, sitting at Jesus' feet, hearing his words, or coming to church on Sunday, or at your job on on Monday. It's a question of how you serve, where you are. With a joyful, happy heart that's at rest in the fullness of provision and grace of the God of heaven and earth. That we're not distracted by all the little things that occur each and every day and say, get angry at this, get mad at this, isn't this unfair, isn't this unjust, look at what they're doing, look what the politicians are doing, look at what the economists are saying, look at what the people on TV are putting forth. Sometimes you just have to shut down the media and just say, forget it, and recognize that these people just want you to tune in every day to find something to get angry at. You need to turn away from that and focus in upon the one thing needful, the presence of the living God and the pleasure that that living God deserves to receive from you, that we are full in Him and satisfied in Him and content to fill a little space if He be glorified. Whether Mary's helping or not to do the will of God from the heart. She was troubled with her thoughts. Jesus says, you're anxious and you're troubled. Martha, Martha. And you know, that doubling of the words really express on Jesus' part, not censure, but, but, but affection and compassion. Abraham, Abraham. God calls out to Abraham. It's not scolding him. It's not censuring him. David, Absalom, Absalom. Filled with a sense of fatherly love to a child who rebelled and a child who was taken from him. Martha, Martha. Saul, Saul. Why persecute you? Those doubling of those words that you find in Scripture. I don't think we should read them as if the person's getting scolded. I think we should read them with the note of affection and love. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. It's interesting how the parable of the sower earlier on in chapter 8 speaks about how the seed is sown in the midst of thorns. And it's, it's the cares of this world and many things that just enter in and choke the word. We, we have to be on our guard not to allow the many things that would occlude our understanding and, 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 uh, and uh, hinder our vision of the reality of a, of, of a God of presence sufficiency for us in all of our concerns and in all of our needs. He's a very present help in times of trouble. I think Jan and I both can say we couldn't have gotten through Sunday, as a Thursday, if we did not know a present God who meets us in present help. Because I tell you, there were times when my mind was just going crazy about the possibilities of what if this and what if that, and maybe this would be, and what if the doctor says. And all those scenarios were playing it out fully before my mind, and my mind was not being helped by any of it. It was troubled by many things. 
And just the ability to say, Lord, help me to tune it out. I'll cross that bridge when I come to it, if I come to it. By your mercy and grace, I won't come to it. But help me to focus my mind on the reality of your present help. The very present help in time of trouble. What a joyful thing to, to realize and to appropriate and to implement in the midst of your mind being troubled about all manner of things, all manner of what-ifs, and all manner of what'll I do when. Martha, so the dinner's going to be a flop. People aren't going to say, kudos to the chef! And say, Martha, maybe you ought to hire a cook. <laughs> this just did not work out. So what? Again, the important thing is that Mary has chosen a good portion. And it wasn't the good portion of the meat that was prepared, or of the vegetables that were prepared, or the bread that she that was prepared. It was the good portion of spiritual food that Jesus was filling her mind and heart with. That food that Job said is more than my necessary food. More important than my necessary food. The reality that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God will provide manna. And even though it's not, you know, it had its downside. It was that plain old manna that they complained about in Numbers 13. But it was nutritious. It was what God provided. It was miraculously provided. You ought to have been doing cartwheels every day that manna was provided for the needs of God's people. But we so easily get ourselves unhappy and dissatisfied when things are not what we want them to be or things are not the ideal. Don't let the ideal hinder you from enjoying the good. Receive the good. Enjoy the good. What great good came to this home with the presence of Jesus in their midst? And that that should ever have been hidden from Mary's thoughts and and, and, and that other things should have entered in to distract her and to trouble her and to bring her anxiety. Jesus cared. She should never have been jealous at her sister, never should have been angry at her Lord. You know what the problem, I think, is? is she had forgotten why she served. It's not that she served. It's not a question of um, you know, serving or, or, or listening. It's a question of knowing why you're doing what you're doing. Is it to gain a reputation from others? It's to, to elicit flattery for herself? It was out of love to Christ, love for the disciples of Christ, the joy of blessing others, of knowing it's more blessed to give than to receive the glory of God. Those are the things that should have been motivating her. You have to stop yourself. Stop yourself in your tracks. I do it often when I'm preparing messages for preaching. Because, you know, I'd never preach a single sermon 
if my idea of what a sermon should be was the criteria of, okay, now it's all ready, all systems go. Because it's never all systems go. It's never what I think a sermon should be. I'd have a real problem ever preaching a sermon if I allowed the ideal to get in the way of the good. Tim Keller helped me on that one time when I heard him say, never try to preach a great sermon. He says, you can't make a sermon great, only God can. You be content to preach a good sermon. Just go after the good. Just go after the good. Because I wouldn't be, again, I wouldn't be able to preach if I was looking for the great. And so a lot of times I have to just stop myself and say, why am I doing this? To be considered a great preacher? To minister to the people of God. To serve the Lord Christ. To be found faithful to the one who called me into his service in this ministry. We need to be properly motivated by his pleasure. What is pleasing in his sight. Yes, it's good to sit at his feet. Receiving his words. But yet we can't be rising from the seat of receiving in order to go fight with your sister in the kitchen. Or to have your sister fighting with you. The inner life must be freed from distractions and charitable desires that we might give ourselves to faithfulness in every walk of life, in every part of life. Let's not be distracted from the singular goal that ought to guide one's service, the singular pursuit of his pleasure. And folks, I think that's exactly the point that Jesus is making. What Mary chose was was not just to hear his words, although it was that. It was to hear his words in the posture of a disciple. Of one that was concerned not just to gain information, but to be conformed to the master. That's what a disciple is. It is enough for a disciple to be as his master. To be able to walk away from hearing Jesus' words and to be able to relate with an angry sister with the heart that Jesus displays when he said, Martha, Martha, you troubled about many things. After listening to Jesus' words, Mary should have got, could have gone up to her, just hypothetically, and said the same thing. Martha, Martha. You shouldn't allow these anxieties and troubles to despoil our relationship because our relationship is far more important than whether you get the right dishes out on the table or whether this is perfectly kosher by the rabbi's rules and regulations. It's not ritual, it's relationship. We can't abide the disrupting of this relationship we can't envy one another imagine if Martha had made an amazing meal and it was served to Jesus and then Mary's sitting there saying oh boy she's getting all the credit for this great meal and she could have had her own place of, of envy but the point is we can't be envying one another 
God has given us each a place and a role and a portion of time and gift and influence that we should use to our utmost to, to fulfill His will, to seek His pleasure. Not to say, well, what's the point if I can't be as popular a preacher as someone else, or I can't be as um, great a theologian as somebody else, or I can't be someone who prays in the way somebody else, or I can't do anything for God's glory because I'm not leading. I can't just be a someone who follows others and seeks to, again, fill that little place if he be glorified. His glory in the little things should thrill us to the core of our souls. I have a place to fill in the purposes of God in which He is pleased, in which He is smiling, in which in the day of judgment I will hear from His own lips, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. May God be pleased to give us the spirit of true discipleship, to seek His pleasure in all that we do, in the hours of quiet contemplation before His Word, in the hours of active, rigorous, energetic service to His name. Whatever our hand finds to do, let us do it with all of our might for Him, for His name for his honor, for his glory. May God be pleased to give us help. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that we have this incident recorded in Luke's Gospel. We're thankful, Lord, we can see ourselves in so much of what transpired in that home in Bethany as we often have been bitten with the with the jealousy, with the itch of jealousy. We've we've often been just unhappy and dissatisfied with the place and position you've put us in. And we say, Lord, do you not care that I'm here and not there? We ask for forgiveness. We ask for a different set of understandings. We ask for a heart of true discipleship, a heart that delights and doing your will and takes pleasure in pleasing you. Lord, we ask that you would hear our prayers, that you would strengthen us in your grace, that you would help us to be a people with a singular ambition, a singular goal, that in seeking your presence, we would be seeking to please you. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us as your people. We ask you to give us grace to please you even now as we come to the supper of remembrance that we would truly do these things that are, we're about to do in remembrance of Jesus. We'd ask this in his name. Amen.